0: I need you, Lord. I need you every hour. There is not a moment that we do not need the help of our Savior. There's not a moment that we do not need his righteousness. There's not a moment that we do not need his intercessory work on our behalf before the Father. And we need him now. We need him now to help us to see clearly who he is in his word. We need his spirit to open our eyes. We need his grace to help us to know the glory that is revealed in these beautiful verses. If you have your copy of God's word, we've been studying through the gospel of Mark. And so I invite you to turn with me to Mark. Mark. Chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. We find ourselves in a familiar passage where Jesus is walking on the water. And one of the questions that people ask most often when they come to any text of Scripture, specifically narratives, stories, is they will ask a question that goes something like this Where am I in this passage? Where am I in this text? It's a question that's seeking application, it's a question that's seeking for uh, the so what? What am I supposed to do? And, and the question comes from a place I think genuinely you're trying to understand, okay, how am I supposed to live in light of this text? But it's a dangerous question, and I think it's the wrong question to begin with, because what if you're not in that text at all? In all honesty, a better question would be, what does that text mean even if I never existed? Because that text has a meaning apart from you finding yourself in the passage. And so studying these verses this morning is not about finding ourselves in the text. Are we in the boat with the disciples? Are we trying to walk on the water? It's not about finding ourselves in the story. It's about seeing Jesus. That's the point of this text. It's seeing Christ and it's savoring his glory. Then, once we understand who he is and how he operates, then we can find ourselves in operation with him, around him, defining ourselves, defining our lives in relation to him. And then we can see the implications for us and how we should live in light of these verses. But we don't start there, because if we start there, we make ourselves the center of the text. And this text is not about us. It's about Jesus. We've been saying over and over again that our goal every time we gather in the, on the Lord's Day and in this gospel is to stare at Christ and to be transformed by him. And we get the privilege of doing that this morning, just on full display. Jesus is on full display this morning in these verses. So let's study these verses. Let's look at these verses. Let's stare at Christ. And see his glory. In fact, we'll see six different aspects of his glory in these verses. So we'll see his glory. Then we will define our lives in relation to his glory. And then we will see, by implication, how we fit in the grand scheme of God's plan of redemption, even as seen in this passage. Mark chapter 6 beginning in verse 45. Let's read together. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he himself was sending the crowds away. After bidding them farewell, he left for the mountains to pray. And when it was evening, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land. And seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them. At about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea, and he intended to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed that it was a ghost, and they cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke with them and said to them, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Then he got into the boat with them, and the wind stopped. And they were utterly astonished because they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves. But their heart was hardened. These are the words of our gracious, holy, and awesome God. Let's ask his blessing on our time as we give careful attention to them. Father, we read this passage, and it is a passage that is familiar to many of us. Many of us who have grown up in church circles, we've seen the flannel graphs we've watched the cartoons and yet father there is so much that we have missed in these verses thinking that we just we know everything there is to know about this story so father i pray that you would break our hearts and give us humility may we have a fresh sense as we read this text, as if we were reading it for the first time, not knowing what was going to happen. God, there is a very clear warning in these verses that the disciples' hearts were hardened, even as they are seeing you work wonders. So too, we have the wonder of your word in front of us on our laps. We get to read it. We get to study it. And yet, our hearts can be hardened to. So Father, I pray that you would graciously soften our hearts. Make us moldable people. Make us teachable people. Unstop our ears. Take the blinders off of our eyes. May we bow in submission to your word and stare at Christ. And may we see his glory. Father, please let us see his glory on display in these verses. And so, Holy Spirit, you have to do that work in our midst. You have to give us that precious gift of illumination. It's not given to us by the basis of our strength or our intellect. It is only given to us by your kindness. So, Holy Spirit, open our eyes that we'd behold wonderful things from your law. This morning we pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. In these verses, we will see six different elements of the glory of Christ on clear display. Number one, we see the protection of Christ, the protection of Christ. This is verses 45 through 46. We see his protection. Verse 45, immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side. Immediately, he made them. Immediately, he makes them. He forces them. Get into the boat and go. And then he sends the crowds away. Why? My question is, why? Why immediately? Why does he make his disciples? Why does he force them? There seems to be a sense of urgency. Get in the boat and go. And then he stands and talks to the crowds. Why? Mark doesn't tell us why. But John does. Thank you, John. Thank you for the gospels. Thank you for four accounts so that we can understand when we harmonize all of them together, we know exactly what Jesus is doing. Jesus knew that the crowd was going to come and take him by force and make him king, John chapter 6. And he does not want his disciples getting caught up in the false belief of the crowds. So he sends them away immediately and then he sends the crowds away immediately. He stands in the gap and says, get away from them. Because he does not want his disciples getting caught up. And he doesn't want himself getting caught up in that. He did not come to earth to be made political king. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. And so he himself will not get caught up in something that will sway him from his mission. But just think about how easy it would have been for Jesus to just coast. He just fed the 5,000, the crowds probably 20, 25,000 are there trying to come and make him king. Imagine how easy it would have been for him to say, you know what, I am going to go to the cross, but for now, let's stop fighting against their affections for me as a political ruler. Let's just enjoy it. Let's enjoy some popularity. Let's enjoy some control. Let's just sit in this moment. But doing what is right is always better than doing what is easy. And he knows the reason why he's here. He knows his mission. And he will not let anything get in the way. But notice his protection of the disciples. The enthusiasm of the crowd could have made the disciples think, you know, this is great. Let's establish our headquarters here in Galilee. Let's get him to be the political ruler. Maybe we can have a kingdom here and then we can go down to Jerusalem and take it by force. We can overthrow the Romans but Jesus withdraws and he tells his disciples to leave. Why? Because the enthusiasm that the crowd has is not for who Jesus really is. This is so important for our day. This is so important for our culture. This is so important for our context because people can have great enthusiasm for Jesus, but the Jesus that they're excited about is not the real biblical Jesus. People get excited about following a moral teacher. People get excited about following hippie peace Jesus, or countercultural cool Jesus, or Christian nationalist Jesus, or socialist Jesus, or capitalist Jesus, or just your spiritual life coach Jesus. But that's not the real Jesus. That's not the Jesus of the Bible who came to give his life as a ransom for many. And if your enthusiasm for Jesus is for a Jesus that doesn't exist in the pages of Scripture, then your enthusiasm is not an honor to the real Jesus. And mark it, he will leave you the way that he left the crowds. If you are coming to him, but it's not the real him, you don't want him for him, you want him for something that you want from him, he will leave you. Just like he left the crowds. So he leaves, and he tells his disciples to go to Bethsaida. They're probably on the outskirts of the city proper, and so they're probably on the eastern side of Capernaum and the miracle of feeding 5,000 between Capernaum and Bethsaida, and now they're going to the eastern side of Bethsaida. They're moving around. Ultimately, they're going to go over to the land of the Gerasenes, which is the end of chapter 6. But he says, leave, go, get away. And he himself, verse 46, after bidding them farewell, he left for the mountain to pray. Only three times in the Gospel of Mark are we given an explicit mention of Jesus going away by himself to pray. This is the second time. The third will be in Mark chapter 14 in the Garden of Gethsemane. He goes to the mountain to pray. We don't know exactly what he's praying for. But I would imagine at some point in his prayer, because he's praying all through the night, he is probably praying something that's prefiguring John 17, the high priestly prayer. Father, keep them. Guard them. Guard my disciples, protect them. There are crowds around them that could sway their understanding of who I am and of what my mission is. So Father, keep them, protect them. By the way, Hebrews chapter seven says that he's still praying that prayer for you right now. Hebrews 7, 23 through 25, the former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them he ever lives. That's one of the reasons why he rose from the dead. He rose from the dead to always live, never to die again and to always live praying for you, making intercession for you. Romans 8:34. Who is the one who condemns Jesus Christ? Is he who died? Yes, rather who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. He's praying for you right now. Remember when Jesus speaks to Peter. When he rebukes him, Peter, yeah, get behind me, Satan. You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of this earth. And then he says, Luke 22:32, 32, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. I have prayed for you. Jesus prays for his people. Louis Burkhoff says, it is a consoling thought that Christ is praying for us, even when we are negligent in our own prayer life, that he is presenting to the Father those spiritual needs which were not present to our minds and which we often neglect to include in our prayers, and that he prays for our protection against the dangers of which we are not even conscious and against enemies which threaten us though we didn't even notice it. He's praying that our faith may not cease and that we may come out victoriously in the end. And Robert Murray McShane says, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. Can you imagine hearing Christ praying for you right now? Praying for needs that you don't even know that you have. All the needs that we think that we have, that we tend to pray for. Jesus is probably saying, yes, we'll pray for those, but there's deeper issues going on. And he's praying for you right now. Just as he protected his disciples back then, so too he is protecting his disciples even today, even right now at this very moment. The glory of Christ is seen in his protection of The disciples, number one, the protection of Christ. Number two, second aspect of his glory, the providence of Christ. The providence of Christ. This is verses 47 through the beginning of 48. While it was evening, the boat is in the middle of the sea and he is alone on the land. Seeing them straining at the oars for the wind was against them at about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. They're in the middle of the sea of Galilee at the middle of the night. And I'm sure that there has to be at least one disciple who is saying, guys, shouldn't we have learned our lesson? Don't ever get into a boat without Jesus and then don't ever sail without Jesus being awake, right? We've learned our lesson, don't ever do this. Somebody probably just as it's pouring rain, dripping wet is probably saying, I told you guys we shouldn't have sailed without Jesus in our boat. And here he is on the land, seeing them, straining at the oars. That word straining is translated elsewhere in the New Testament as tormented. They were tormented at the oars. They were in great pain. They were struggling. They were frustrated. Matthew 14 tells us why they were frustrated. Because they were, quote, battered by waves because the wind was contrary to the boat. They're fighting against the storm. And it's the fourth watch of the night. Fourth watch is Mark's Roman way, way of telling time. This is the way that the Romans would have told time. This is the final of four watches. There are four watches of the night. The night was divided into four different watches. This is the last of the four watches. And it's from 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. So somewhere between 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. And as they're straining on the oars, Jesus sees them From the hillside, (laughs) the Sea of Galilee is 13 miles high, eight miles wide, there's a storm, it's pitch black, Jesus is on the hillside, and he sees their boat in the middle of the sea. Only God can do this. There's no lighthouse, there's no binoculars, there's no lamp, there's no searchlights, there's no boat. Jesus is just standing on land and he sees everything. And he sees better than if he had all of those other things at his disposal, Only God can do this. But notice, why are they in the storm? They're in the storm because of verse 45. Immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him. They're in the storm because they obeyed Jesus. Spurgeon says their sailing was not merely under his sanction, but by his express command. They were in the right place, and yet they met with a terrible storm. Jesus had set all of this in motion when he commanded them to get in the boat and leave. Their obedience is what leads them into the storm. If you are in the midst of some storm in your own life, it is so easy to be tempted to think instantly this is because of my doing, because of my sin, because of my disobedience, and maybe it is. But I want you to see here, it is because of their obedience that they are in the middle of the storm. As one commentator says, if we are obedient to Christ, there will be plenty of storms, There will be danger and difficulty, weariness and exposure, anxiety and dread and sadness. We will be open to an index of sorrows and stresses that are unknown to the uncommitted heart. But take cheer. Christ sees all and knows when we feel we are alone and we fear that no one else knows or cares. He prays for us even while we are in the storm. He comes to us in the midst of the gale, treading across the problems that afflict us. We are not in the midst of those problems outside of his providential care. In fact, it is the exact opposite. It is because of his providential care that he is pushing us into the middle of those storms so that we would trust him and see himself prove himself trustworthy we see the protection of Christ and we see the providence of Christ thirdly we see the power of Christ the power of Christ this is verse 48 the power of Christ not only number one is he able to see the boat in the middle of the Sea of Galilee secondly he's going to stop the storm in verse 51 that's going to demonstrate his power but then, thirdly, he's going to walk on the water. You realize it would have been crazy enough if Jesus had just come to them in the midst of the storm swimming, like just swimming from the shore into the middle of the ocean or into the middle of the sea. That would have been crazy enough. But he doesn't do that. He walks on the waves. This is something that only God can do. John, or Job chapter 9, verse 8 says that God alone marches on the waves of the sea. God alone has the power to do that. And if he wants to give the power to Peter to do that, he can. But God alone has the power to do that. We see the protection of Christ. We see the providence of Christ. We see the power of Christ. Number four, a fourth aspect of the glory of Christ on display in this passage, the proclamation of Christ. Number four, the proclamation of Christ. This is the end of verse 48 all the way down to verse 50. Verse 48, middle of verse 48 says, he intended to pass by them. He's walking on the waves, intending to pass by them. What does this mean? Does it mean, as some people kind of take it to mean on first reading, that Jesus is just intending to walk past them? Like, hello, everyone, and just leave? And not stop and not help and not be with them? No, that's not what this is saying. There's a very specific use of this word, pass by. It shows up in Exodus chapter 33, verse 18. You remember when Moses says, show me your glory. God, show me your glory. And what is God's answer? I'm going to put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will pass by. I will make my glory pass by. You will see an aspect of my glory... As I pass by, that word "pass by" in Hebrew in Exodus 33, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is called the Septuagint, that Greek word for "pass by" is the same word that's used here for "pass by. I'm going to make my glory known to you. I'm going to show you who I am. God does the same thing with Elijah. You remember First Kings chapter 19? Right after 1 Kings chapter 18 on Mount Carmel, the prophets of Baal, they lose that uh, contest and Elijah slaughters the prophets of Baal and then he runs faster than Ahab's chariot and then he's exhausted and he hides and he says, God, there's no one else uh, but me who hasn't bowed the knee to Baal. Let me just die here. And you remember God says, no, there are others that haven't bowed the knee to Baal. You need a nap and some food and then he makes his presence known. Remember, there's the whirlwind, there's the um, thunder, there's the, uh, all these different manifestations. And it says God's not in any of those things, but God then passes by Elijah and makes his glory known as he passes by. That's the same, again, Septuagint, same Greek word, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, same Greek word, passing by Job chapter 9, verse 11 uses the exact same Greek word, again in Septuagint, of God passing by Job, passing by somebody. He says, If I wanted to see the glory of God, then I would need to let him pass me by. But he says, Who's able to have that happen to him? What Jesus is doing here when it says he intends to pass by them. As he wants, in theology we'd call it a theophany. He wants to show the glory of God, a manifestation and an appearance of God. He wants the disciples to see this is God. And the disciples think he's a ghost. Verse 50: when he's walking by, they see him and they suppose that it's a ghost. A phantom, the Greek word is phantasma. He's a phantom, he's a ghost walking on the waves. But Jesus, knowing that they have not understood the theophany, they have not understood this is God as he's passing them by, he then proclaims that he is God when he says, verse 50, immediately he spoke with them and said to them, take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Three phrases, take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. In Greek, if we were to put all those together, they're very small phrases that he's probably yelling because of the storm. The first is take courage. The second, my Bible says it is I literally is I am. And then the third is no fear. So literally he says, take courage, I am. No fear. So if they didn't understand the theophany of Christ, the proclamation of Christ, the appearance of Christ as God passing them by, he then gives them a second proclamation of who he is when he uses Yahweh's name. Yahweh, I am. He says, I am. You remember Exodus chapter three, verse 13, when Moses says, who should I say sent me? Pharaoh It's going to be mad when you say, I'm supposed to let uh, God's people go. Who should I say sent me? And God says, tell him I am sent you. There are other places in the Gospels where Jesus takes upon himself that name. I am. He's proclaiming himself to be God. We see the protection of Christ. We see the providence of Christ. We see the power of Christ. We see the proclamation of Christ. Number five, the fifth aspect of the glory of Christ is the presence of Christ. This is verse 51. "Then he got into the boat with them. And the wind stopped and they were utterly astonished. He got into the boat with them. We see the power of Christ on display yet again, because the storm ceases, but it's almost as if that's not the biggest deal of this passage. It's almost like that's just a side note. In fact, in the gospel of John, John doesn't even include that. John just says that Jesus gets into the boat and they find themselves on the other side of the sea. They find themselves back at shore. It doesn't even include the storm stops and everybody's astonished. No, it's just Jesus is with them. Jesus gets into our circumstances with us. He doesn't perform a miracle to save them from far away. He joins them, showing them that he is the miracle himself. In essence, he's saying, I don't just make the wind stop. I get into the boat with you, which is an even greater miracle than me making the wind stop. And as long as Jesus is in the boat with us, it doesn't really matter what's happening around us. remember Psalm 23, Ben quoted it for us last Lord's Day. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I have everything I need if he is my shepherd. And you remember that line, he prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. I've always read that and i thought that verse is messed up. That verse should say, he prepares a table before me after he defeated all my enemies. What good is it if I'm in the middle of my enemies and I'm eating a feast with God? I don't want that. I want my enemies gone. And that's the beauty of that psalm because the psalmist says, actually, it's the other way around. If you have God with you, then it doesn't matter what's going on around you. If God is with you and you have the presence of Christ with you, like Daniel said, as he read that beautiful psalm, Psalm 16, we have the presence of Christ in us, dwelling in us through the Holy Spirit. If we have that, we have everything that we need. So whether the story is about being rescued from hunger by making bread like last Lord's Day, or whether it's being rescued from wind by walking on the water, the point's the same. Jesus is saying, I don't just give bread, I am bread. I don't just make the wind stop. I get into the boat with you. I am with you. We see the protection of Christ, the providence of Christ, the power of Christ, the proclamation of Christ, the presence of Christ, and finally, number six, the patience of Christ. The sixth aspect of God's glory on display in Jesus Christ is the patience of Christ. Verse 52, they're utterly astonished. Why? How would you have written verse 52? They're utterly astonished because they just saw Jesus walk on the water. They're utterly astonished because Jesus isn't about with them. They're utterly astonished because the storm has stopped. Mark tells us exactly why they're astonished. Because, verse 52, they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. They had seen Jesus care for and shepherd the people. In the last text of the feeding of the 5,000 that we saw last Lord's Day, he was shepherding them like Psalm 23. He was the true and better Moses, and he is God, very God, being Not the the giver of bread, but being bread himself. They had just seen that just hours earlier. And yet here in this text, they think he's going to abandon us. He didn't abandon 25,000 people, but he's going to leave us. He's going to abandon us. They had so quickly forgotten. Notice how close you can be to Jesus and what he's doing. Miraculously so and so quickly forget. But notice, when people fail to understand who Jesus is, it is not because of a lack of evidence. They don't understand. They should have seen and perceived. They're missing something, but they're missing something not because they don't have enough evidence. They just saw Jesus multiply fish and loaves For 25,000 people. They know clearly this man provides. And they even saw his precision in his provision. 12 baskets, little lunch pails left over. It is so clear that this man is God. And yet they're struggling to believe it. Why? Not because of lack of evidence. It's because of hardness of heart. So explicit there in verse 52. Because their hearts were hardened. Hardened. Being amazed at Jesus is something very different than genuine saving faith. They are struggling to understand and Mark tells us what should have been the connection for them that they failed to connect. They had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves. So the miracle of defeating the 5,000 was not just standing on its own. This miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 and the miracle of Jesus walking on the water are connected. They should have understood something about Jesus because of the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 that should have worked its way into their understanding of what's happening here on the waves. These are connected. The miracle of Jesus walking on the water is served by the bread issue last Lord's Day. So what's the connection? Well, what do hunger from last Lord's Day, and wind have in common. What do hunger and wind have in common? If you have enough of either of those, you'll die. And so you see the disciples' fear on display, and Jesus is calming their fears by his very presence. Whether the disciples were a little bit afraid last Lord's Day, with the feeding of the 5,000, we don't know we're going to get bread. These people are going to be hungry. We're kind of hungry, too. We don't know what we're going to do. And Jesus says, serve, keep serving, keep serving, keep serving, keep serving, multiplying, multiplying, keep serving, keep serving, keep serving. And, you know, one of the disciples' stomach starts growling. He's like, man, can I have some of this food? No, keep serving, keep serving, keep serving. And then at the very end, how many leftovers do we have? Enough for a meal for you. Eat, Be satisfied. Jesus satisfies his disciples in the feeding of the 5,000. As we looked last Lord's Day, he's the true and better Moses, not just providing bread from heaven that satisfies for a day, but by being bread from heaven, being the very bread that eternally satisfies. Jesus is the true and better Moses, not just making a way through the sea to be saved, but coming to you in the midst of the storm to save you himself, Jesus is the true and better Moses who did not strike the rock, but became the rock for us, struck by God's divine judgment so that we could drink of the living water. Jesus is the true and better Moses. For, in the words of John 1, the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So these two miracles are connected by Jesus saying, I am proving to you that I haven't come just to offer you something. I've come to give you myself. I am bread. I'm in the boat with you, and I am God. These two miracles taken together prove that Jesus is God, prove that he is trustworthy, prove that he is worthy of being treasured and valued above all things, but the disciples failed to recognize that, and that's why I say point number six, look at the patience of Jesus. He's on the hillside. He's seen them strain at the oars, And he doesn't think, man, I picked the wrong 12 guys. He doesn't think, you know what, let me just let them figure this out on their own, and I'm just gonna go find some other guys. No, he goes to them. Do they deserve his presence? No. He, in kindness and grace, says, I'm still here. Sure, you failed again. Sure, your hearts are hardened. But you don't get Jesus, any aspect of Jesus, because of anything that you have to offer him. You never do. You never have anything that's good enough to offer him that would make him say, oh, I have to pick you. Our hearts are hardened, and he says, I still love you. Our ears are stopped up. Our understanding is clouded, and he says, I'm still here. And he gets into the boat with us. But do you notice anything missing in these verses? There's a glaring omission, and it's a strange one, given the fact that we've always said all along that the Gospel of Mark is really the Gospel of Peter through Mark's pen. What's missing from this text? Peter walking on water. Matthew gives us that information. It's a harrowing account. It's amazing. I love that story. So why doesn't Mark, especially since Peter's telling Mark what happened, why doesn't Mark include it? Can I tell you what I used to think? I used to think that you know Peter's telling Mark, and Peter says we were in the middle of the storm. Jesus saw us. We were straining at the oars. We see him walking by. We didn't understand. We should have understood. This is his glory. And I yell out to him and I say, can I walk on the waves? If it's really you, tell me to come on the waves with you. I, I got out of the boat. I jumped out. I start walking and then I sink. And Jesus picks me up and we get back in the boat. I'm soaking wet. And he says to Mark, you know, Matthew already wrote that down. And it just makes me look like a doofus. Can, can we just not put that in there? I don't think that anymore. I used to think that. I used to think that it was pride that made Peter keep himself out of the story. I look like a fool and I look like a fool so often in the gospels, can we just take this one time out? I don't think that anymore. I don't think it's pride that made Peter say, hey, let's keep this out. I think it's humility. Peter knows he failed. He's fine telling all of us he's a failure but I don't think that he's asking Mark not to include that part of the story because of his pride. It's because this story isn't about Peter. And Peter would say, I don't want you to fix it on me and on my failings. And I also don't want you to get stuck by looking at yourself in the text and saying, well, how am I like Peter and walking on the water and keeping my eyes fixed on Jesus? No, just keep me out of it. I want the people reading your gospel to see Christ to be enamored by him and not be distracted in any way. Jesus is the hero. Leave me out. And so I see Mark saying, okay, I'll leave you out. And Peter just through tears saying, "Ah, I hope that people reading this account will see the glory of Jesus passing them by where we failed to see. Do you see him passing by today? Do you see his glory on display, that he protects you, that he loves you, that he has providentially allowed whatever storms you're going through, that he's with you, his very presence is there, he's proclaiming to you, I am. Do you see his patience with you, even when you struggle to believe, even when your heart, is hardened? Do you see him passing by today? If you do, submit to him. Cling to him. J.C. Ryle says that Jesus sees you and will not forsake you. And so if you see him, would you run to him? Would you run to him this morning? Would you cling to him? Just like we sang earlier, our one defense, our righteousness. You are everything that I need, Jesus. I have nothing good in myself to offer you. The only thing that we have to offer Jesus in our justification is the sin that made it necessary for Jesus to die on the cross. Would you run to him today? And if you are a disciple of Jesus, if you are a follower of Jesus, maybe you feel a strong opposing headwind in your life. Maybe you feel that you are in the midst of a storm present in your life. Maybe you are straining at the oars. Where are you straining at the oars in your life? Where has your hope been deferred and your heart is sick and you're just sick and tired of rowing? You're done. I would plead with you, don't lose heart. Don't give up. These disciples had been rowing for hours and Jesus didn't show up until the last watch. Jesus lets them experience the extremity of their needs so that they would know that they can fully rely and depend on him. So depend on him, trust him. God is often the God of the fourth watch. And as you're waiting and as you're hoping and as you're anxious and worrying and taking all of your anxieties to him because he cares for you, Trust him. I love how Spurgeon says it. If we do not know when God will deliver us, which we don't, then it's none of our business. (laughs) If God knows that's enough, we are to follow him, not to lead. We are to obey him, not prescribe. So keep rowing. Row confidently and trust Jesus. Jesus expected them to be trusting him. He found unbelief where he expected to see belief but their hearts were hardened. So do you trust him? Where in your life are you currently struggling to trust him? The disciples' failure encourages my soul because I fail all the time too, and Jesus is patient with me in exactly the same way he's patient with them. The glory of Jesus on display in his protection his providence, his power, his proclamation, his presence, and his patience. But the greatest glory of Christ, if you put all of those things together, the greatest demonstration of the glory of Christ is not that he walked on the waves of this storm, but that he walked into, willingly walked into the greatest storm of all on the cross, bearing the full righteous, furious wrath of God against us and our sin, Jesus willingly walked into that storm. He willingly surrendered himself to be destroyed by that storm so that in our lives today, we don't ever have to fear any storm, come what may. He has experienced the full wrath of God so that we not only do not fear future wrath, but we only have the hope and expectation that we have only love from the Father through Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit to enjoy both now and forevermore. Father, we thank you so much for these verses We thank you for the hope that we have in Christ. We thank you for the love that we see displayed here, even in a well-known verse, a passage that we, we have heard so many times, and yet we're reminded again of the kindness of our God, his patience, his providence, and his power. God, I pray that you would give us great comfort and encouragement today through the gospel that you faced the greatest storm and were forsaken by the Father so that we don't ever have to fear any storm in this life and we know with confidence we will never be forsaken. So Father, we, with hearts that are filled with gratitude and excited expectation about the future, we cling with hope to Christ who is our sure and steady anchor no matter what may come. We pray it all in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.